Welcome to the Richardson Seventh-day Adventist Podcast. I'm so excited for you to join us. Each week, we'll bring you a sermon from one of our ongoing series. This week, we continue our journey through Game Changer. It's a term that you often hear associated with sports, but it really applies to everything or anything. So enjoy, and let's get to it. Before we continue, I just want to, you know, give a little preface of what's about to happen. I am going to tell a very uh, personal story, a struggle I've had, and then intertwine with scripture that has spoken to me, and I hope it will speak to you as well. Let's pray. Dear God, this is not my story. This is your story. I ask that your name be glorified in all that I say, and let your words be heard in everyone's ears today. I trust you, and I'm doing this because I love you, God. Amen. Keeping the law perfectly, keeping myself to a perfect standard, living with the ideal balance of mind, body, and spirit, this is how I can attain salvation, or this is what I thought. I never actually verbalized it in that way, but my actions and my motive betrayed a deeper misunderstanding of how God really works. Just three years ago, I was uh, headed to seminary with my wife uh, for my first ever training in uh, theological studies. And God had been calling me for years to go into pastoral ministry, and I ran from him at every turn. I knew what I wanted. I knew what my, uh, would be best for me. So I pushed all of my life's weight into good things while avoiding the best thing. So, for example, I graduated from Southwestern Adventist University with my marketing degree. Not with theology, like God was trying to call me to do, but with my marketing degree. Um, the whole time throughout this, nobody knew what I was feeling, what I was struggling, because I became so good at faking it. So good. I wore the right clothes, I said the right things, I memorized the right verses. So my number one talent became pretending. I wore, like I said, the right clothes. I even um, am the right gender, so to speak. I'm going to go there. I even have the right skin tone. I was set up for successes by everyone around me, both robbed from other people and things that God has given me. I had all kinds of privileges, but still I ran from what God wanted me to do. You know, I would have these days in my job where they would be excellent. I would be very happy. Things would go very well. I'd come home happy, and then as soon as I was truly alone, I would recognize that I was unfulfilled. What I was doing did not make me happy. So there were moments like these that really shined bright in my life for God trying to reach me, but I still pushed him away. My wife, Steph, is a teacher, and she's an excellent at that. I'm not biased at all. Um, but there are days where she would, she'd have very hard days. She'd come home uh, from the stresses of that day and she'd have tears in her eyes just at the overwhelming um, emotional and physical output that she had to give. But I could see, even in the tears, that she had fulfillment. That God was letting her know, even in the midst of those tears and the overwhelming stress, that what she was doing was where God wanted her to be. And it was through seeing that that I recognized I didn't have that. Of course, throughout this time, there were many, many bright spots. 
summer camp has always been incredibly dear to my heart. Back in 2010, I followed Steph to camp, and I stayed for God. And I know that sounds cheesy, but truly, um, the summer before, she had gone to camp and I didn't. And when she came back, uh, we clashed. Um, and I'm looking back on this now, and I realize it's because she had grown spiritually, and I did not. So I went for her, and I stayed for God. At uh, summer camp, I got to know a lot of really Christ-centered people. I was able to participate in a, a drama play that, oh man, I've never seen Jesus in that way before. And I can honestly say, after I got rebaptized there that summer, that if it wasn't for summer camp ministry, I don't know if I would even be in the church. God works there, and he works powerfully. So my blessings continued. Isn't it crazy how God blesses us even when we're off track from where he wants? God is so good. The blessings continued. My friends, my family, they're top notch. They're here right in front of me today. I got to call them out. They support me back there too. They're amazing. Um, but I never really gave them the chance to know that I was hurting. So it's not on them, it's on me. And in this time, my heart wasn't made of stone. It wasn't even made of flesh. It was made of plastic. It's made of plastic. You know those apples in the hotel lobbies? Yeah, you know the ones I'm talking about. The ones that always have a bite mark in them because someone just did not believe that they were fake? That was my heart. It looked real to everyone passing by, but only I knew that what I was putting forward wasn't real. Faking it. God finally broke through my plastic heart in 2015, again at summer camp, after I had been doing my marketing job for a few years, I finally decided, God, I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of being unfulfilled, and I'm tired of telling you what I need. So I gave up, sick of fighting God, and I, this is completely my imagination, but I imagine that God, sitting on the throne, leaned over to Gabriel and was like, yo, I've been working on this guy for years. I'm so excited to knock down all these doors so that he can be where I need him to be. And God did that. He blasted down a bunch of doors. I was able to go to seminary, and then now I'm here. God is good. But what I'm not telling you is on the way to seminary, something in my heart shifted. Um, instead of allowing God to continue to grow my heart and to heal it and make it flesh, I tried to be even more perfect. I tried harder to follow the law. I tried, I tried, I tried, and it was stressful. Oh, is it stressful. I became that guy. You know, the one where if you're debating with him about theological things, he's like, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with the Bible. You know, those kinds of conversations just are not fun. And uh, it, was, it was in this process that I developed more false ideas. You'd think at some point I'd recognize what was happening. I thought all pastors had to be perfect. I thought their theology must be perfect. I thought they must attain perfection before God can use them. I had the idea that pastors are closer to God than other people. But what happened to the priesthood of all believers, right? Hmm. I tried, I tried, I tried. 
and I failed, and I got even more perfectionistic. You know, we talk about physical self-harm, and we should. We talk about mental self-harm, and we do, which, a matter of fact, we have a mental seminar, uh, a mental um, awareness seminar at 2.30 this afternoon. I encourage you to go. But what we don't ever talk about is spiritual self-harm. This is what I was doing to myself. It had gotten to the point where I didn't even know if I was welcome in heaven. I tied Jesus' grace to my successes so that whenever I failed, my very salvation was lost. This darkness, this perpetual trying and failing affected every part of me. But remember, I'm really good at faking it. But I'm actually going to stop there and get back to that later. And just bear with me. This will all intertwine. But right now, let's dive into Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You can go there on your iPhones, iPads, physical Bibles. God uses them all. So the context of this passage is uh, we, we find a group of people that had literally just experienced the most amazing thing that uh, the Bible has recorded so far. They have been removed from a nation that was oppressing them, from a nation that was uh, enslaving them, and God brought them out into a new life. And already, just three months after that event, God is wanting to make that relationship even more intimate. Let's read it. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So I just want to take a step back and look at that first part of the verse. You yourselves have seen. This is important because this isn't a handed-down story. This isn't something that is recorded in a book that these people are reading. This is something that they have seen. They are eyewitnesses. So this is, uh, this is validation, Okay. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Notice here, who is doing all of the action? God, the Israelites haven't done anything to deserve this. God did this to the Egyptians. He bore or lifted them up on eagle's wings, and he brought them to himself. The first step for what God is about to do starts with God bringing us to him. Mm. Verse 5. Now, therefore, which is on the basis of what God has already done, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So you see the word there, obey, right? Well, in the original language, it's actually here. And what's important there is the understanding for the Hebrews was that when you heard something, you obeyed it. But if you translated that in English, it doesn't make sense because I hear things all the time and I just ignore it. So God is saying here, hearing this, if you obey, then all these things will happen. That's why you have verses that say, hearing they do not hear or seeing they do not see because there's that double meaning where action will result from it. And the other important thing I want to emphasize in this verse is all the earth is mine. Okay, so the Israelites just came from Egypt and in Egypt, there were gods for pretty much every facet of life, right? And in Canaan, they had their own gods as well. They were kind of territorial. So when God is saying, all the earth is mine, this is a game-changing, paradigm-shifting, huge statement 
God is claiming to have ownership over all those other gods, ownership over all those other nations. So when he's about to give these Ten Commandments, this is not just for the Israelites. These Ten Commandments are a promise to the entire world. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That probably reminds you of another passage, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Uh, if you wouldn't mind going there, we will read those very quickly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Can I ask you guys something? And if I ask it, can you, can you make a covenant with me that you will respond? Okay, cool. So when I ask you what is a priest or what is the main role of a priest, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Just shout it out. What does a priest do? Sacrifices, yes. Minister, shepherd. These are all good. Um, I think these are all accurate. And I think they point to what I would argue is the main role of the priest, which is mission. The chief goal of the priest is mission. The sacrifices, the shepherding, the, all these other things that the priest does, it's to reconcile us with God. The goal is to bring people closer to God. So then, if we are a chosen royal priesthood, then we're living out the covenant that God made to Abraham, which is being blessed, we are to bless. So this doesn't only say learned men can be priests, only learned women can be priests. This would include the children. This would include the youth, the young adults. We are supposed to be an entire chosen nation, working together with each of our strengths, making up for each other's weaknesses. Can you just envision the beauty that would be if we all work together? So the Ten Commandments then are missional in nature. It's a bold statement from God about reality that seems too good to be true. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We looked a little bit about what precedes the Ten Commandments in chapter 19, but now let's dive into chapter 20. I'm going to start at verse 1, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You know, it's really interesting. The, the rabbis, you know, the Jewish, teacher, uh, Jewish teachers, they, they have a debate going right now on how many laws are actually in the first five books of the Bible. And one of the laws that is in question is in the um, two verses that we just read. And that is, I am the Lord your God, is a command to believe in God. It is only on the foundation of his existence that the rest of these laws even make sense. And it's also the only way we can keep these laws. It's on the foundation of his existence that these things even make sense. Nothing that the Adventists, I mean, nothing that the Israelites did earned this. It was all because of what God did and continues to do. So in a moment, we will look into the Ten Commandments themselves 
but let's uh, go back to my story a little bit and continue from there. I want to give you a glimpse into the mindset I had when I was uh, struggling in that phase, and I hope you can't relate. So in case you couldn't tell, I'm perfect. I wake up each day with a burden in my heart for everyone around me that's not as perfect as I am. They're not at seminary. My Twitter feed is full of Christian quotes. I only watch sermons on YouTube. I don't use it for any of that heathen stuff. And I'm a pastor. I stand in front of the podium. Therefore, I must have a stronger relationship with God, right? You see, I give to the homeless. I mentor the youth. I come to church each Sabbath. And I make sure to keep every commandment. And I wear the dressiest dress clothes each day. But oh my goodness, is that man over there? Is he not wearing a tie? Does he not know to come with the Lord's best? That woman over there, is her dress too short? Is this Babylon? My goodness, how's that person over there in church? I know they were sinning last night. There are days where I sit and I just praise God that he created me such a useful instrument of the gospel. I look at other pastors and other worship leaders, and I just wonder how God could ever use someone that interprets scripture differently than me. I just know that since I wake up consistently to pray and I wake up early to get with God, that my walk with him is better than my neighbor, who I know misses a few worships. My works are literally the best thing to ever happen to Christianity. Okay, that's a little exaggerated, right? Or is it? This is what I used to think. This is what the horrible, no-good curse of perfectionism did to my thinking. I was trained to be more like, I don't even know what this means, but I was trained to be more like the ideal Christian. And I think we all have a vision of what that is in our heads, but can we actually even verbalize what that means? I don't know. It's some lofty goal that I can't reach because I tried and tried and tried, and I failed. So like I said, I learned to fake it. But when I didn't make the cut, I just faked it some more. And the horrible thing is I started to believe in my own lies by pretending to be perfect I even fooled myself. I looked down on people that God was working on. I focused more on my appearance than on my Bible studies. I used the Bible to put forward my own agenda. I talked about God, but I didn't know him. I put works in the place of God's grace. I pushed people away from the church because they didn't look like me. I judged others because their skin tone was different than my own. I denied who God wanted me to be, and I chose to be someone else. I proclaimed God's grace while living a life that denied that power. I tried to hold so tightly to God's blessings to make sure that people that weren't as good as me would stay away from his grace. If I were in David's shoes, I would have put on Saul's armor and went to battle Goliath, and I would have lost. I put myself in the place of God. I'm a recovering Pharisee. But it's okay, right? I have the law to protect me. But what do I do when the law, who has been my best friend, who has been everything that I've lived for, can't clean me? What do I do when the law, who is my best friend, shows me just how dirty I am? If God wants me to be perfect, then why do I keep failing? 
it's hard to earn grace. This mentality went on for a few months, and to her credit, my wife was not having any of it. She knew how I used to be. She knew I was pretending to be someone that I was not. God used her to intervene. It was a fall evening in Michigan, and this may be too intimate, but this is what happened. I was taking a shower, and she stepped in with the sternest face I have ever seen in my life, and honestly, I was scared. She had my full attention. She looked at me. I don't remember if she grabbed my face, but she might as well have. So just imagine, my face grabbed, shower, not, not the most dignified moment. She has my full attention, and she said something like this. This is an intervention. So I knew I was in trouble. You have been so worried about living up to this person in your mind that's the perfect pastor. But God didn't call you to cookie-cutter you. He called you to use you just the way you are with your own special talents and things that make you special. I praise God for you, Steph. You are a light in my life, and God has spoken through you to me pretty much daily. When I think of someone that reflects Christ's character, you are the first person I think of. It's been a struggle since that day. But God has been transforming my heart from plastic into flesh. I have to convince myself each and every single day that it's okay. It's okay to fight in my own armor. It's okay to be me. It's okay for you to be you. God can use you in your armor. Actually, he's the one that gave you that armor. If you don't preach, if you don't teach, if you don't sing, that's okay. God gave you your talents that you have for a reason. You don't have to be more like me. Please don't be more like me. You don't have to be more like Ty Gibson, Dwight Nelson, any of the famous preachers that you like to hear. You don't have to be like those people because they're not perfect either. You just have to build that relationship with Christ. That is your focus. Don't worry about trying to be more like someone that's being successful. See how God can grow you, and that is your source of success. I think of shepherd boy David. Did he become King David by trying to copy King Saul? Of course not. He let God dream for him. He let God grow him into the best king that he could be. So let God dream for you. I'm not going to attain perfection until Jesus comes. And I've learned that that's okay. That's okay. My plea to you is to learn what I am just now learning in Galatians 5.14. Actually, no, don't just learn it. Please live it. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it sounds so simple, right? It couldn't be that easy. But I wonder, how can I follow the law if I don't even love myself? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, then obviously I need some love for myself as well. You see, God gave these Ten Commandments not as a condition to earn His love, but because He already loves us. He already loves us and chose to pay the price for us. Therefore, if the God of the universe loves me, 
then I have value. If the God of the universe loves you, you have value. So then, the natural response when I understand that I'm loved is to share that love because I understood once what it was like to not know that I was loved. So I want to make sure everyone around me knows about that love. That is the fulfillment of the law, is loving others as yourself. It's so insanely beautiful and complicatedly simple, but everything comes back to the reality that God is love. Mm. So then let's put that into practice. Let's say my wife um, has needs and she's things she's yearning for and other things that she wants, and I anticipate those things. And I go out of my way selflessly to take care of those needs. Her being selfish would be pointless because I already took care of her needs. So let's say she does the same back to me. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat or um, you know, brushing my teeth or you know, from the simple things to the big things because she's already anticipating what I need. Therefore, the selfishness would be a waste of time. So let's imagine that is spread out to the whole world. What if every interaction we had wasn't focused solely on how can I make the most money? How can I make the most friends? How can I look the best? But it's centered just on love, on outward facing, on making sure everyone around you, their needs are met before your own. You know, that reality is actually something that the Ten Commandments predicts. This is a reality that is exactly like it sounds, a real, tangible place. So let's look more into that. In the Ten Commandments, you know, you, you hear it translated as uh, you shall not or thou shalt not, right? That's an accurate translation, but in addition to that, you can also translate it as you will not. It's almost as if there's a missing therefore before that. So if I was going to add something based on the rest of Scripture, I would say something like this. God says, I love you, and you understand my love, therefore you will not have any other gods before me. You understand my love, I love you, therefore you will not make carved images or worship them. You will not take my name in vain. I love you, you understand that, so you will remember the Sabbath day. You will not dishonor your mother and your father, which I gave you. You love me, I love you, therefore you won't take life. You will not destroy the relationships I've given you. You will not take what is not yours. You will not hide the truth. You will not be unhappy with what I have given you. You see, we kind of have it backwards sometimes. The goal of the Ten Commandments is not to avoid the bad stuff. It's to enable you to have the best possible life as God defines it. This is the good life, man. The Ten Commandments love rules. I get excited thinking that this is a reality that will actually happen. These Ten Commandments are predicting a place where this will be how we interact. This is not just for the Israelites temporarily. This is promising a future where we will be able to enjoy each other in a safe way. We won't have to worry about all these things because the motivating factor will be love. So still I wonder, what's the purpose of the law in terms of personal growth, in terms of personal holiness? What is the purpose of the law? Do we discard it? Absolutely not. Because without the law, I wouldn't be aware of how dirty I am. I wouldn't be aware of my need 
of a Savior. It is because of the law that I can proclaim to you Jesus Christ. He is that Savior. Don't, please don't, don't try to earn your salvation in the law. All you will see is that you are not enough. You will see that you need a Savior, and that Savior is yearning for you. He has already done the hard work. All you have to do is just say, yes, yes, God. Hmm. It's as pointless to try to be perfect by the law as it is to clean your face. So let me leave you with this passage from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So please learn from my mistakes. Grace is simply unearnable because it's a gift. We're not to focus on cleaning the dirtiness. We're to accept that we are dirty and we are to put on the robes of righteousness that Christ offers so freely. I know it's clumsy, but God still loves me and he still loves you. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by this sermon. Next week, we'll continue our journey through Game Changers. So bring a friend, listen, have a conversation, and remember, you're in our prayers. <laughs>